Hey, Keystone, it's good to see you today. Uh, we are uh, glad that you've chosen to worship with us in this way. And I'm hoping that you've found some ways to be able to worship together as a family that begins to feel like worship. Like when the music is playing, that you are singing along. And when Pastor Keith is preaching, that you've got your Bible out, you've got your notebook out, uh, and you're able to follow along. We have a task force that is figuring out how are we going to reopen. We know that we will get together uh, at some point, but we just don't know when yet. Um, so this task force has given some recommendations to the elders, uh, and within a week or two, we will be informing you of how we will start uh, a slow process of opening up, likely small groups first, uh, before opening up to larger groups. And so I encourage you to be praying along with us. Uh, as we've discussed as staff and elders, we want Keystone to be marked by a kind of countercultural love as we make these decisions. That there'd be a countercultural attitude of sacrifice. That like Christ, we want to lay down our rights for the good of others. We want to sacrifice maybe our best intentions for what is actually best for someone else. And so I'd be praying, ask you to be praying with us to be marked by sacrifice, to be marked by humility, to be marked by patience, uh, that in this season, um, people might be able to look to see how does uh, Keystone reflect the love of Jesus. Other announcements that are coming your way, we have a new email service. And so some of you have probably noticed that the Keystone Weekly looks a little different. I think it looks great. The one thing that might be different is that in order for you to see everything, you've got to click on that link that says, show me more. Uh, and if you do click that link, you'll go off to a website that will list off far more information. And so my encouragement for you, when you get the Keystone Weekly, uh, you can buzz through the quick feed in the email. But if you want to know more, and you will want to know more, most everything else is in that more section. Click that other button uh, and spend a little bit of time figuring out what Keystone is up to. I'm going to pray for us. Before I do, I just want to say hello to the kids out there. Uh, kids, love that you are still tuning in with us. Uh, love that you're able to follow along. I'll give you just a little sneak peek into what Pastor Keith is talking about today. He asks an important question. Who killed Jesus? Who killed Jesus? There are a lot of guesses. There are some usual suspects, and you might want to take some guesses, maybe even write it down ahead of time. Who do you think killed Jesus? And then pay attention to see how Keith goes through the, the suspects and gives us the answer, because the answer to that question has really big implications for us, uh, whether you are little or whether you are uh, bigger and older. And so my encouragement for you is see if you can't pay attention and figure out who do you think killed Jesus this morning. I'm going to pray for us and encourage you to be praying along with me. Father God, we come to you uh, today uh, wanting to see you in your full, infinite, eternal glory. Lord, we, we worship you because the plans that you make are sure to come to, come to completion. That what you desire happens. And Lord, I pray that as we sing songs today, and as we unpack your word, that you'd allow our hearts to worship with you in song and that your spirit would bring truth to us that we might see with the eyes of our heart, not just what the truth is, 
but why it's such good news for us. So would you lead us today in worship in Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning once again. It's good to be with uh, you all, whether you're in Lancaster County, Berks, Chester, or some uh, other area in Pennsylvania or out of state and uh, even around the world. It's so grateful for the digital technology that we have to be able to get together even uh, during this quarantine. And I want to just say uh, thank you to you, um, part of our fellowship. Um, I have to confess that in the early weeks of the quarantine, uh, my, I had some pretty serious concerns about where things would go financially, and I had proposed to the SLT some, um, some drastic steps that we might need to take down the road. But uh, it has been amazing. Thank you for your generosity. We're so grateful for your faithfulness and for the Lord's provision through you. Um, we have not cut back support for any of our missionaries, our global or local partners, and um, that's because of your, your faithfulness. So just want to say thank you for, for that. Our conversation today is about who killed Jesus. Who killed Jesus? Back in 2007, the police were called to a, a drug house in Detroit, Michigan, where four people had been murdered. When they arrived, they found a 14-year-old boy standing outside the house in his pajamas. Devante Sanford was blind in one eye. He was developmentally impaired. He, had a, um, he was known to fabricate stories. The police picked him up, took him to the station, and for the next two days, interrogated him without a parent, without an attorney, and the end of those two days, he made a confession that he was the one who killed those people. And the only thing was that he had not done that. Nevertheless, he was put on trial and uh, found guilty and sentenced 37 to 90 years in prison, 14-year-old boy. Towards the end of that trial, a man who was serving 50 to 100 years in prison for uh, the contract killings of eight other people came forward to say he was the one who had done it. Vincent's, uh, Vincent Smothers was a hitman, and uh, even though he submitted a statement, the judge did not take it into account. Uh, Sanford was still found guilty and sent, sent to prison. Five years later, Smothers again tried to um, get the authorities to listen to his uh, insistence that he was the killer, not Devante Sanford, but again, a judge refused to order a new trial. Well, in 2015, Smothers began to work with the Michigan Innocence Project, and uh, this time presented a 26-page detailed affidavit uh, to the justice system, uh, giving all the details about what had happened at the murder, some of them details that only the actual killer would have known. Uh, this time, uh, he had had his effect. He made his comment in the affidavit, I had never met, spoken with, or even heard of Devante Sanford or anyone connected to him. Devante Sanford is being wrongly incarcerated for a crime that I know he did not commit. And Sanford was freed in 2016 after serving nine years in prison. Tragically, uh, no justice system is perfect and ours certainly isn't. 
just in 2018 alone, over 150 convictions were overturned and people walked free, some of them after having served decades in prison for crimes they did not commit. And the aggregate number of years those people served, represented by those overturned convictions, was 1,600, over 1,600 years. And yet no miscarriage of justice has ever been equivalent to the one uh, whereby our Savior went to the cross and died. Not only not guilty of the things that he was charged with, but not guilty of anything, never having done any wrong, tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. And so this morning I want you to turn to Luke 23. We'll look at the first 25 verses. This is happening right after the examination by the Sanhedrin that we looked at last week. Uh, the Jewish council had had one examination at Annas' house and then another at the high priest Caiaphas' house. Now things are shifting to Rome's authority. Then the entire council took Jesus to Pilate, the Roman governor. And they began to state their case. This man has been leading our people astray by telling them not to pay their taxes to the Roman government and by claiming he is the Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus replied, you have said it. Pilate turned to the leading priests and to the crowd and he said, I find nothing wrong with this man. Then they became insistent. But he is causing riots by his teaching wherever he goes, all over Judea from Galilee to Jerusalem, which was not true. Oh, is he a Galilean? Pilate asked. When they said that he was, Pilate sent him to Herod Antipas because Galilee was under Herod's jurisdiction and Herod happened to be in Jerusalem at the time. Herod was delighted at the opportunity to see Jesus because he had heard about him and had been hoping for a long time to see him perform a miracle. He asked Jesus question after question, but Jesus refused to answer. Meanwhile, the leading priests and the teachers of religious law stood there shouting their accusations. Then Herod and his soldiers began mocking and ridiculing Jesus. Finally, they put a royal robe on him and sent him back to Pilate. Herod and Pilate, who had been enemies before, became friends that day. I just find that so fascinating that the Prince of Peace, even in the midst of his most trying time, impending execution, is still making peace between people. Then Pilate called together the leading priests and the other religious leaders, along with the people, and he announced his verdict. You brought this man to me, accusing him of leading a revolt. I have examined him thoroughly on this point in your presence, and I find him innocent. Herod came to the same conclusion and sent him back to us. Nothing this man has done calls for the death penalty. So I will have him flogged, and then I will release him. And then a mighty roar rose from the crowd, and with one voice they shouted, Kill him and release Barabbas to us. Barabbas was in prison for taking part in an insurrection in Jerusalem against the government and for murder. Pilate argued with them because he wanted to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! 
For the third time he demanded, Why? What crime has he committed? I have found no reason to sentence him to death. And so I will have him flogged, and then I will release him. But the mob shouted louder and louder, demanding that Jesus be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate sent Jesus to die as they demanded. And as they requested, he released Barabbas, the man in prison, for insurrection and murder. But he turned Jesus over to them to do as they wished. Father, this grave miscarriage of justice cannot be compared to any other. And the outcome of this kangaroo court cannot be compared to any other. And yet Jesus clearly, willingly laid down his life for the likes of me, us, not because he was guilty, but because he was on a mission. And I'm so grateful as a sinner set free by his sacrifice that he did. And I pray this morning as we um, kind of examine these verses and contemplate who was responsible, that we'd have eyes to see and ears to hear, and the enemy's hopes would be dashed in our thinking, in our understanding, and in our living. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> now let's look from this passage at who were the most likely suspects in killing Jesus. And I'm going to add two others that don't appear here. Obviously, in the first sentence, the council, the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, are prime candidates. They, after all, conspired to kill Jesus. It was their uh, end game from the start. Before the examinations ever occurred, before they were um, putting Jesus on trial, they intended to kill him. And so they're certainly a likely suspect. So is Pilate. He was, after all, the one who ultimately authorized the killing of Jesus. Even though he knew Jesus was innocent, even though he knew that the, all the charges were trumped up, it says in Matthew 27, 18, that he knew that the Sanhedrin members were jealous of Jesus. They didn't like the way the people were listening to him, the way they were following him, and, and kind of working around the Jewish religious leaders. Well, what about Herod? Well, Pilate says that Herod found him innocent and sent him back to Pilate for final judgment. So um, he's still a candidate. He still had his hands in it, but he doesn't seem to be, um, to be really a, a likely suspect. Then we get to verses 18 and 21. And now we're talking about the Jewish people, not just the Jewish leaders, but the people have been whipped up into a frenzy by their leaders. Killing, release Barabbas to us. Verse 21, crucify him, crucify him. Now, I want to linger here for just a bit because these verses and several others are the grounds on which an eventual anti-Semitism was built in the Christian church um, actually by the second century AD. In fact, let me take you back to Matthew chapter 27. Uh, Matthew 27, beginning of verse 24. 
This is talking about this trial before Pilate. Verse 24, Pilate saw that he wasn't getting anywhere, that a riot was developing, and so he sent for a bowl of water and he washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. The responsibility is yours. Now, it doesn't work quite like that when you are in a position of power. You can't simply um, repudiate your responsibility when you're the guy at the top. But this is what the people yelled back, verse 25. We will take responsibility for his death. We and our children. And tragically, Christians over the centuries used that line to say the Jewish people and all of their offspring bear responsibility for the death of Jesus. And it was not simply a kind of groundswell in the average Christian's thinking. It was um, furthered by and, I mean, kindled by leaders of serious standing in the Christian church down through the ages. So for example, in the late fourth century, a priest by the name of John of Antioch um, went to Constantinople, became an archbishop there. Now John was a, you probably have never heard of him, but he was a very gifted and famous preacher. Very strange story. Can you imagine a church, let's say a church in Colorado, lost their preaching pastor, he's either retiring or he's moving to another church, and this church decides they want to get the best preacher out there, and they land on Andy Stanley. And so they don't send him an invite, say, would you consider our position? They send a couple of ex-Special Forces guys from their church, and they send him to Atlanta, Georgia, when he come, comes home to his house one day, they throw a blanket over his head, they push him into a van, they take him to Colorado. And then when he gets there, they say, you're gonna be our preacher. Believe it or not, that's exactly what happened to John of Antioch. Somebody in government in Constantinople decided they wanted the best preacher they could find. They, got, they sent people to kidnap John of Antioch. They brought him to Constantinople. And unbelievably, he accepted his being there as the providence of God and he became the Archbishop of Constantinople. Now, you've probably never heard of John of Antioch, but if you've had any flirtation with Christian history, you may have heard the name Chrysostom. The word simply means golden-voiced or golden-tongued. That was John of Antioch. And a lot of his sermons survived. He did a lot of writing, much of which was good, but he wrote against the Jewish people in unbelievably wicked language. Listen to what he said. Jews are dogs, stiff-necked, gluttonous drunkards. They are beasts unfit for work. The Jews had fallen into a condition lower than the vilest animals. The synagogue is worse than a brothel and a drinking shop. It's a den of scoundrels, a temple of demons, a cavern of devils, a criminal, here's the key line, a criminal assembly of the assassins of Christ. His animosity toward them was rooted in his belief that they were responsible for the killing of Christ. He goes, I hate the Jews because they violate the law. It is the duty of all Christians to hate the Jews. It's, in other words, it's not just my personal opinion. This is what's biblically right for you to do if you are a Christian. 
You fast forward 1,100 years to the architect of the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther, when he was asked, what shall we do with this rejected race of Jews? This was his answer. First, their synagogue should be set on fire. He's advocating arson. Secondly, their homes should likewise be broken down and destroyed. Thirdly, they should be deprived of their prayer books and the Talmuds in which such idolatry, lies, cursing, and blasphemy are taught. Fifthly, traveling privileges must be absolutely forbidden to the Jews. In other words, that's a uh, 16th century quarantine. If, however, we are afraid that they might harm us personally, in other words, if we do all these things and they lash back at us, then let us settle with them for that which they have extorted usurously from us, and after having divided it up fairly, let us drive them out of the country for all time. Jews have long been in the banking industry, way, way, way back in time. Why? Because they believed in God and they were honest because of it. And so people would leave money with them when they would travel and so forth. They would get a fee for it. So that's what he's talking about. We're going to take all their money from them. We're going to divide it up and then we're going to drive them out of the country. This is, this is, the, this is the man who nailed the 95 Theses on the Wittenberg door, urging the Roman Catholic Church to reform. And here's his attitude toward the Jewish people, Jesus' people. These kinds of documents and writings were quoted by Nazi officials during the Third Reich. They were reprinted during the Third Reich. And when some of these men stood on trial for their lives at Nuremberg, they even used these writings as defense for what they did to the Jewish people. Now, I find this repulsive and horrifying until I think about my own sinfulness. But there is a strain of anti-Semitism throughout the Christian church that appears more and more intensely at certain times in history, and it is a stain on the church that we must repudiate. I don't know if these men forgot Ephesians 2, where it says that Christ has brought Jew and Gentile together. Now I want to bring in two other uh, potential suspects in the killing of Jesus. One would be Judas. Of course, he sold Jesus out um, for money uh, to the Sanhedrin, and that arrest led to eventually Jesus' death. And then, of course, we can't forget the Roman soldiers who did the actual killing. So here we have a lineup of probable suspects who is actually responsible for killing Jesus. Uh, first, we're going to look at a number of different categories here. The first one is who shares the, who shares the blame. All right, we might not be able to pin it on one, but who shares the blame? First and foremost, we would say Judas, likely candidate. And Jesus had said about him at the Passover meal, the first communion, he said it would be better for the person who's going to be, betray me be better if that person had never even been born. And Jesus said about him when he was praying his high priestly prayer in John 17, uh, he said, Father, I haven't lost any that you've given to me, meaning the disciples, the Peter, James, and John, I haven't lost any of them except the one doomed to destruction. So we, we, we know that Judas, bear, even in his own eyes, he bore blame. When he realized that Jesus was going to be executed, realized that Jesus was innocent. He was horrified. He tried to give the money back to the Sanhedrin. They wouldn't take it. 
and filled with remorse, he went out and hung himself. So he even understood that he bore great blame in this. But it's not just Judas. The Jewish leaders themselves bear blame as well. In fact, listen to this in Acts chapter 7. When Stephen was arguing with the Jewish leaders about uh, their legacy of mistreating all of God's prophets. And he says this about them in verse 52. He says, name one prophet your ancestors didn't persecute. Well, they even killed the ones who predicted the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah, whom you betrayed and murdered. Jesus' blood is on your hands. They share in some responsibility. Uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 23, a great sermon that, G, uh, that Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. Uh, he says this at the end of verse 23, second sentence in verse 23. He's speaking primarily to a Jewish audience. They were in town for the Jewish feast of Pentecost from all over the world. He says, with the help of lawless Gentiles, you... You, you Jewish people, take responsibility. You nailed him to a cross and killed him. Not just you. Lawless Gentiles include Pilate, include the Roman soldiers that flailed Jesus back, that wove the crown of thorns and jammed it down on his head and ultimately nailed him to the cross, thrust a spear in his side, responsible to kill him. So he gets three groups of people uh, indicted in this sentence. Lawless Gentiles, but you also nailed him to a cross. So you share responsibility. Now, based on what Pilate said, we can exonerate Herod. Herod found him innocent, uh, sent him back, sent Jesus back to Pilate. So shared responsibility, Judas, Jewish leaders, the Jewish crowd, the people, lawless Gentiles, Pilate, and soldiers. There's one other culprit that's not mentioned in the text we read this morning, though. An invisible culprit, kind of in the shadows all along. And that is you and me. Because the only reason that Jesus needed to go to the cross was to die for the sins of people like us. This is what the writer of Hebrews says at the end of chapter 9, verse 28. So also Christ was offered once for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. Offered once for all, unlike all the animal sacrifices that have been offered by the Jewish people, once for all as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people like me and like you. This was the invisible culprit that's woven through all the text of all the Bible. Uh, we are guilty. He was innocent. He paid for the sins of the guilty, and so we now bear his innocence. We have received his righteousness. Now, let me just say something about that responsibility. I have come in contact with people, believers, over my lifetime who feel that responsibility so deeply, it's almost like they can't get beyond that. Um, here's the thing, every last one of us is equally guilty before God. We're all indicted. We all stand at the bar being declared guilty and sentenced for our sins. 
So no one of us can bear more responsibility than the next. The other thing is that God never intended for this awareness of our guilt to consume us or crush us and live with that. Jesus died to set the guilty free. It's Satan that wants us to live under this uh, bleak shadow of guilt. That's why Revelation calls him the accuser of the brothers, the, the one who continues to accuse and say, you're guilty, you've sinned this way, and, and you're never going to get rid of the stain of that. And Jesus is there to say, oh, yes, he is. Oh, yes, she is. That stain's been taken care of by my blood, just like every other stain of guilt in his or her life. Guilt is not... God designs guilt in the believer's life to bring us to repentance, not to leave us stuck in guilt. It's Satan that wants to keep, keep us there. He loves to keep us imprisoned there. God designed guilt to be paid for by Jesus' blood and for that to breed thankfulness. So we've talked about who shares the blame and now we have implicated ourselves. We are the invisible culprits behind the death of Jesus, but there's one more place we need to go, and that is asking the question, who is ultimately responsible? Who is ultimately responsible? And the answer to that question might surprise someone. God is ultimately responsible. It was his plan, it was God's plan. Listen, it is neither inaccurate nor offensive to say that God killed his son that God killed Jesus. Let me take you to a couple of texts. Right out of Jesus' own mouth, John chapter 10, verse 17. John 10, 17, Jesus says, The Father loves me because I, I, sacrifice my life so that I may take it back again. No one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily, for I have the authority to lay it down when I want to, and also to take it up again. For this is what my Father commanded. Oh, God's plan. He sent me here to do this. In fact, Jesus would say to Pilate in John 19, 11, uh, when Pilate says, don't you know I have, the, I, I have the authority to take your life? And Jesus says to him, no, you don't. You, you wouldn't have any authority if it was not given to you by my Father, if it was not given to you from above. The reason that all of this is happening is because it's God's plan. Go back again to Peter's sermon in Acts 2. Acts 2. In the beginning of the verse that we read earlier, verse 23, God knew what would happen. He's talking about the death of Jesus. God knew what would happen, and his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. In other words, this was, this was all crafted in heaven long before it took place here on earth. And uh, let me take you to chapter 4 yet. Now this, is, this surfaces in a prayer that the people were praying, the believers were praying to God, verse 27, Acts 4. In fact, this has happened here in this very city. For Herod Antipas, Pontius Pilate the governor, the Gentiles, the people of Israel, were all united against Jesus, your holy servant, whom you anointed. But everything they did was determined beforehand according to your will. And the interesting thing was it wasn't determined uh, nine months before Jesus showed up on planet Earth. 
It wasn't determined 500 years before Jesus showed up on planet Earth. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life that you inherited from your ancestors. What empty life? Life of sin. It's true if you were Jewish. It's true if you're Gentile. It's true if you believed in one true and living God. It's true if you believed in many gods or no gods. God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver, which lose its value. Today, if someone kidnaps a child of a millionaire, and they keep him and say, uh, you can have him back, you can have her back, if you pay a ransom of $1 million or $5 million to $10 million. Money gets the child's life back. So it's paid. This ransom was not paid with just money, not gold or silver, which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, and God chose him as your ransom long before the world began. But now in these last days, he has been revealed for your sake. Just think about that for a minute. Before God created the world, before he created plants, before he created animals, before he created the universe, before he created human beings, he had tagged Jesus, his son, to be a future redeemer. I think, wait a minute. People hadn't even been created. They hadn't even sinned yet. Mm -hmm. God knew what was going to happen. God understood the wickedness of the human heart, even though he made it perfect, that it would rebel and it would require the blood of his son. This is not only God's plan, but it's God's ancient plan. And in it, he portrayed his own love, Romans 5, 8, uh, God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And Jesus himself demonstrates his love for us. As he told his disciples in John 15, 13, uh, greater love uh, has no man than this, than he laid down his life for his friends. And I think about that great prayer Jesus prayed shortly before he went to the cross. He prayed not just for his disciples, the 12, but he prayed for us, his disciples today, God sent me to save you and deliver you. Now, let me just touch on something here. I want to, I want to take the fact of Jesus' death for sinners and, and draw out a surprising benefit because it's not unusual for us to preach the work of Christ and the cross and then turn it around and say, now what can we do for Jesus? Look what he's done for us. What can we do for him? And I want to talk about that. I want to talk about the benefit that we find in the gospel of Jesus Christ for us. Not what do we owe. We can't, we don't owe him anything. We can't pay him. When you owe somebody something, you pay them back. And Jesus paid for our sins, period. Don't you love that song, Jesus paid it all? I love to sing, Jesus paid it all. But then I have a problem with the next line because it follows up to say, all to him I owe. If we owe something, that means we have to pay someone back. If you owe me five, if you pay me, loan me $5,000, I have to pay you back $5,000 unless you forgive the loan. I don't owe 
Jesus something because I couldn't pay Jesus what his sacrifice was worth. So he's made payment for our sins, yes. And, and by the way, that only gets applied in the, uh, in the response to our faith. That payment, Jesus died for the sins of the world, potentially, that doesn't get applied though until we put faith in Jesus Christ. But in that payment for our sins, there is a promise for your future. There's a promise for my future. Romans chapter 8, verse 32. Our care group was hanging out on this on Thursday night. If uh, any of you like to read John Piper's works or listen to any of his sermons, you might know that this is John's favorite verse in all the Bible. Romans 8, 32. Because in it, he says, and we look back at the past to provide muscle and, uh, for our faith for the future. Since God did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? In other words, since he dealt with the, by his grace, he dealt with the largest need that we have, the, the most vital, crucial, um, eternal need that we had in giving us Jesus Christ. Doesn't that, shouldn't that, give us the assurance that whatever need we have going forward for his grace will be met by God sufficiently? Every need that we have going forward will be met sufficiently. God's gonna give us the grace. It might be uh, that we have a sickness or a disease and God will supply the grace of healing or he might not and instead supply the grace we need to endure and still be able to find joy and delight in God. We're going to start a series in two weeks on suffering called Rethinking Suffering. We're gonna talk about the tough stuff. My guess is that many of you are going through uh, suffering, most of you are going through the suffering just of the quarantine right now. We're estranged from people and we're not able to get with them and. My wife can't wait to get a haircut. <laughs> we have, we have su sufferings big and small. We have s disappointments large and small. But the Bible is saying that when God has supplied sufficient grace to meet our largest need, that should be ammo for our faith going forward that God will supply enough grace for the lesser needs that we're going to have today, tomorrow, the next day, right up until the moment that he takes us home into glory. Every future tragedy, every future difficulty, every future need, every future da danger is anchored by and provided for in the death of Jesus Christ. I'm not a big fan of heights, but I do like to get up high and see vistas. So like if you would go north here about 45 miles up Bethel, Pennsylvania, you could go on the Appalachian Trail and find a spot that's called Fisher View um, or Kimmel. Uh, I think it's Fisher Lookout and Kimmel View. And you can see as you look out, you can look out over woods and you see lakes and you see farms and meadows and fields. And you can see mountains off in the distance, maybe 30, 40 miles. It's amazing. 
And one of the advantages of getting up high and seeing a big picture like that is we get pulled away from the minutia. The kinds of minutia that get us stuck with, with little things. So like if I would walk in the woods that I would be able to see from that lookout, if I'd walk in the woods, I'd, I'd, I'd notice leaves on the ground and I'd notice uh, laurel growing here and trees growing over here and this tree is dead and this one's living. I notice the nuances. I was outside yesterday and I saw, looks, there's two black spots on a tr maple tree I have. And I thought, is that an insect boring into the trunk? What, what is that? And I become concerned about what do I have to do with it? And I, what, how do I have to take care of it? But when we get in that high vantage point, looking down, we get a wonderful reminder that God's in charge, that he's in control, that he's taking care of that meadow, he's taking care of that field, he's taking care of the woodland, he's taking care of the, the lakes. And, and if he's taking care of the biggest, biggest, biggest things, surely he can take care of the small things like me, his servant, and like you, his servant. And whatever you're facing, or going to face, God's got the grace for you. And may your faith be bolstered today in that. Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and that this gruesome march toward his death, that he was willing to do it. We see him clam up time and time again when he's examined, he doesn't answer them. What's the point? The end game is still the same. I'm going to die. I'm willing to die. I'm prepared to die. I'm ready to die. Because there are these people that my father have, has made that he loves. And he wants to be brought back together with them. He wants to be reconciled with them. He, 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 wants, he wants them to be children of his instead of enemies of his. He wants to deal with their sin in a way that those animal sacrifices never could. So grateful for Jesus' willingness to go to the cross and to pay for our sins. And I pray that that comprehension of the magnitude of that sacrifice, I mean, he dealt with the biggest problem we could ever have in our lives. May that give us the confidence that the grace that we need for today and tomorrow, next week, next year, in the midst of a COVID-19 quarantine, in the midst of a financial uncertainty in the days ahead, uh, in the midst of uh, uncertainty about when we're going to be able to go back to work or, or, or maybe there are other relational problems that are going on that and we're just kind of falling apart. To be reminded all over again, the grace we need, the grace we need, maybe not the grace we want, but the grace we need for tomorrow will always be delivered right on time from your hands. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for worshiping with us this morning. Uh, there are four ways that we would love for you to continue to engage with the, uh, uh, the church at this time. One, uh, there's a little button at the bottom of your screen that says live prayer. And we have people at Keystone who are ready to pray for you. And so if you have any prayer requests, you or anyone in your family watching with you, uh, click that live prayer and somebody will respond in real time being able to pray with you and intercede to God on your behalf. If you are looking for more than just prayer help uh, and are looking for um, actual 
economic, financial help, compassion ministries is, is wanting you to reach out. So we'd encourage you to go to keystonechurch.org slash compassion and there fill out just a short survey, short form to inform our compassion ministry of how we can be in, of, of assistance. We have been looking for ways to make sure that Keystone Church as a body is well cared for. And the way that you can help us do a good job of caring for people at Keystone is to let us know what kind of needs you might have. And on the same page, if you're looking for ways to help, you can click that tab, I'd like to help, and someone would uh, reach out to you to say um, how you might be able to continue to support Keystone and its ministries. One of the ways that you can support us is to continue to give. Uh, as uh, Pastor Keith mentioned, thank you so much for your generosity. We know that God meets the needs of his church through the generosity of his people, and we have seen your faithfulness, uh, the way that you have supported the mission of Keystone Church during this time. And so you can continue to give at keystonechurch.org slash give, um, setting up a one-time gift or a reoccurring gift. You can give through the Church Center app, uh, or if you click on the streaming tab up at the top, it says give, uh, you can give in that way as well. The fourth and final way that you can continue to engage is at the bottom of Pastor Keith's sermon notes, there is a little section for you to uh, um, engage in follow-up questions. And we've heard from several people how they've enjoyed worshiping in their homes because you have the immediate opportunity to dialogue and ask questions and figure out how does this word impact my life? In fact, the pastors are doing that every week. Uh, there's a video that gets uh, uploaded to Facebook, uploaded to YouTube, where you can see the pastors interact with the message saying, hey, how's the sermon continuing to hit you? We'd love to hear how that's impacting you. And so in the comments section or the notes, uh, please uh, let us know. Until then, we will see you next time.